Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Uh, what is it? Let's get recording. Recording. The intro recording song. Do, 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 do. Okay. Hi, V. Hello, everyone. <laughs> we are recording. Um, and today we are doing due dates. And I know that might sound a little bit boring because you're like, blur, due dates, big deal. But it's really, really, really important. Oh, and we're going to talk about them for so long. And we're going to talk about all the epic stuff. Yes, because things like, okay, so ways of estimating due dates, the problems with due date calculations and what happens if you don't get it right and you go past your due, due date. I'm putting um, speech, what do they call them? Exclama- 66 and 99s. Yeah, I'm putting That's those. That's professional um, term. Yeah, if you go past your due date, I don't like that term due date. I um, due so, period, due, due time. Your due time. Your due period. I normally use due period. Yeah, they call it estimated due date, EDD, estimated date. No, estimated due date. Estimated due date is EDD. Estimated date of birth is EDB. That's right. I use estimated estimated date of confinement is EDC. I used to cross that out. I used to see Cs easily make Bs. So I would turn the C into a B because I was such right. a rebellion. We don't, we can't use EDC. Anybody out there is using nah. EDC is estimated date of confinement. That's insane. We get, I use estimated date of birth because that's Yeah, like, I use, well, I love the B word. Birth is my favourite word. But if, if your care provider is using EDC, they're stuck in 1948. Yeah, right. So <laughs> we don't confine women anymore. That, um, mm-hmm. So then we'll talk about that. And then also... What happens if you go overdue? I'm using the night. I'm using the speech marks again. What happens if you go overdue? So we'll kind I feel of like we go. This filmed today, so people can see how many speech marks there are. I feel like our whole podcast is going to be. Okay, now we're doing info. All right. On that note, B, we're going to get started talking about due dates and. Before we go all the way to like how to calculate a due date, I wanted to talk about full what a full term normal pregnancy is. Mm. Right, it's a good thing to start with. Yeah, because you know full full term. Um, so when they give you an estimated date of birth, so firstly estimated, and then it's actually the fortieth week of your pregnancy is what they're estimating. Like you are forty weeks pregnant, but a normal term pregnancy is any time from 37 weeks to 42 weeks. And obviously there's outliers, like a 36-week pregnancy could well and truly produce a beautifully normal birth. And as could a 43-week pregnancy, a lot more unusual, but could also be fine. So that's what I want to say about term is that, because B, what have you seen happen when women you know, their estimated due date is 40 weeks. Then women hit 40 weeks and 10 days and the hospital's like, boom, it's time for mm. your induction. I think it's I think it's far worse than that. It's It starts in the 39 weeks for most people. So I would love for us to move away from the due date and give people a due period so there is really good information and cultural acceptance around the fact that people give birth at any time. So just want to say straight up, people can give birth at any time. That can be at six weeks gestation and end in a miscarriage. People can give birth at 18 weeks and that end in a fetal death. People can give birth at 24 weeks and have really preterm birth. You can give birth from the moment you're pregnant at any time 
in that period. And some women do gestate for longer and will birth around 43, 44 weeks, right? So we do see that it is much rare and much rarer in the system. Typically, these women have to fight really hard in the system to birth after 42 weeks. Um, and and sometimes these women feel a lot safer birthing outside the system. And, and so we see the longer gestations um, in models of care like home birth. So I would love us to move away from the due date and have a due period so that culturally we accept that, oh, babies can come anytime. The most likely time they will come is between 37 and 42 weeks. Now, what has happened is we see 40 weeks as when we expire. And if we don't get a baby out by then, everyone's going to blow up, ourselves and everyone around us. And so what happens is people that are pregnant get inundated with messages. Have you had the baby yet? Have you had the baby yet? How are you feeling? Have you had the baby yet? And what that builds is incredible fear and frustration. The two things that we do not want women to be feeling prior to birth. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I'm seeing happening more and more, and it's been highlighted in a lot of birth debriefs that I do, is, oh, we'll just book you for an induction now at yes. like 39, 40 weeks because we might not have a spot for you. Yes. So let's just book it in like it was like a massage or like you were, you know, trying to get into somebody who was booked out and you needed to book in a couple of months in advance. Like that, let's just book an induction now conversation. That used to happen when I started in hospital, working in hospitals. That would happen at like 41 weeks. Mm-hmm. Now I'm seeing it happening at 38 37, even before that, the discussion around induction, and I'm seeing it, I mean, I see this in really women who have private obstetric care, can happen right from the start. And the discussion of planned cesarean, I I did a debrief with a woman the other day whose private obstetrician said, you know, I had a planned cesarean and it was really lovely. So we could just book that in for you and the recovery is, you know, great. And I like, you know, my jaw is just there on the floor because this was a healthy woman having her first baby Mm -hmm. and this is a conversation she's having. And if you're being having those conversations, that really highlights your care provider's philosophy around yeah and that goes back to episode one where we talked or episode two I think where we talked about the the risk for low-risk women having obstetric care Mm. is this Mm -hmm. higher unnecessary higher intervention Mm. and as you were talking about induction I was just thinking Mm. about today um the in Australia the women and women's and babies report came out which gives us all the general stats on inductions and cesareans and all that kind of stuff and if you are a first-time uh, mother here in Australia, the induction rate for first-time mothers is 46.8%. So oh, like, you want to vomit. Right? So almost one in two first-time mothers will have their pregnancies induced for one reason or another. I, you know, I refuse to believe that half of the women are, are actually have indications for, for that. And if you've had a baby Anna- before, it's 35%. Yeah, and I just, you know, like I wanted to say here, inductions can can be valid, but, yeah, you're right. You cannot tell me that that 50% of us or, you know, 40, whatever it was, percent need to be induced and, you know, just that is birth being done to us as opposed to birth happening, our body doing birth. So I just... I want to that I want to vomit coming up with really I want to cry because it's heartbreaking when we think about what happens to women. Now you can have a really positive induction and some women actually do need them. I'm not, I'm not, you know, going against that, but it, I just see so much birth trauma from inductions and, and women generally just saying, you know, I just didn't feel like it was necessary. I just did it because I was being told to do it and I wanted to be a good girl and I was intimidated by my care provider. That's it. I just want to say this right here, right now, right here, right now. You know, your care provider, we could just sing this podcast, B and Mel podcast, the musical. Um, (laughs) Around your care provider, around your pod provider, around your care provider, you should feel gooey and mushy and safe. 
And what I'm hearing more and more is people, if I say, hey, how do you feel around your care provider? You know, do you feel like you can talk to them about anything, like your deepest, darkest secrets, tell them where you're at, what you're thinking, to have a discussion with them around, oh, yeah, I hear you want me to be induced and this is what I'm thinking, and having your thoughts and your research um, met with um respect and and trust and and belief I guess um and what I'm hearing more and more is oh no I'm actually really intimidated by my care provider because if you're intimidated by your care provider your good girl is going to come out not your birth rebellion or your badass wise woman you're not going to um make decisions that are right for you you're going to make decisions out of fear Mm -hmm. and so what I'm also seeing in um in especially um birth in hospital is the arrive trial has really um you know kind of pushed inductions even earlier and that discussion for inductions earlier so i think the research now is around like three to five percent of babies are born on their due date and we did the the speech quotation marks again three to five percent because that's four weeks right Yeah. And so what I see is most women get inundated. I mean, you know, it's even on social media now, like you see women and they're like, I'm 22 weeks pregnant, 18 weeks to go. I'm 30 weeks pregnant, only 10 weeks to go. It's like, Mm. no, you know, there's, there could be longer in setting yourself up to say only 18 weeks to go. What happens is when you don't get there, you may have feelings of failure already before you've even gone into your birth. What I see is people going, oh, I haven't birthed by my due date, so my body's not working. My body's not going to be able to do this. So they're like some internal thoughts. Then there's like the family and cultural thoughts that are like, why haven't you birthed yet? What's wrong with you? Is this baby coming? Then there's the cultural acceptance around induction because it's so high now that it just is like, oh, yeah, that's what happens. That's how we get babies out. Mm right and then there's the system beliefs which is yeah we need to induce by 41 plus 3 ideally beforehand depending what our booking system is like yeah and so the end of pregnancy should be this stage where we go feeling safer feeling safer all a little bit nervous address those fears feeling safer feeling safer oh i feel so nourished and supported i'm so excited to welcome my baby and so the oxytocin goes and rises until it peaks and our baby says, hey, I'm ready, I feel safe to come out because that's it's about feeling safe, right? Because the baby mm. is this incredibly intuitive being that goes, oh, mummy doesn't feel safe. There must be a bear at the cave, right? And I know I'm being like cave person times <laughs> here, but that's what the, the body doesn't interpret fear and go, oh, I'm not feeling safe because everyone's pressuring me to have my baby. The body just doesn't feel safe. The baby picks up on that message regardless of what its driving force is and goes, okay, not ready to come out yet, right? And And so no wonder. I was going to say top tip is to tell all Mm -hmm. the people around you that you're, if they want a due date, give them 42 weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So you lie and tell them two weeks later. I've done this twice. Yes. It gets a bit tricky because people are really good at math. And so you have to actually tell them, like, if you're 22 weeks and then you're like, but you're actually by your lying dates 20 weeks, right? They start to figure it out. By the time you get to like 36 weeks, they're like, hang on, you said you were doing six weeks' time. You've got to lie on everything, B. Like, if you're actually 22 weeks, don't put that out. The trick here is to be royal. You can be royal. What do you pretend? What are the you, you give a season, darling. You give a season. Baby will be born in in summer. It's oh, going to be yeah. a spring baby or a month. I, I gave a month. Month, yeah. Um, like the April. baby will be here in April, or or I gave an event because we were due the nineteenth of December with Louise. Mm-hmm. So I was like around Christmas, yes. so no date. You don't need to know the dates, yeah. but That's it does. Tricky. When you do lie, it does get tricky because I've run into that issue. Like I had a sister in law that was like, mm, "That doesn't work out." Oh, <laughs> I was why like, are you so invested you. in my lie? Why are you so invested? Did you undo my life? I know. I'm, well, you could just say I'm lying. I'm not telling because I don't want pressure at the end and you guys pressure me. That's the truth. So the truth was, though, that I had a 36-weeker and I told everyone I was due at 42 weeks. So when I had this 36-week home birth, everyone was like, oh, they thought it was like 34 weeks. Oh, no. 
Um, So just be careful there. But Mm. look, I think, you know, let's not lie. Let's own it and say, yeah, I'm having a baby and it's going to come out when it comes out. So yeah, let's own it. As a culture, let's own it and go, you know what? Majority of babies, like 95, 98% don't come out right on 40 day or 40 weeks. We're not overdue. We're in our due period, darling. And it's going to be fine. The baby will come when it's ready. But you know, what happens here is that, you know, we know most people having their first baby will go into that 41 weeks. And I truly, this isn't evidence-based, but it's just bees thinking based. I really, it sounds like a really beautiful sauce that you put on like a pork or something, <laughs> bees thinking based. Um, is the- I've got a label made up, okay? <laughs> Thanks. Can you do it? In I Canva, will, I can. Pretty. Um, <laughs> My thinking is that so much of it would have to be due to the fear that we feel birthing our first babies, that fear of failure, the fear of the unknown, and then just that pressure of, well, if you don't birth, you naughty little girl, if your body is already broken and can't possibly do this, then you have to be induced. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that that kills me. When I hear that number of 46% or whatever it is that you said, almost one in one in five, one in two, if that's how we're going into our, is that's how we're finishing our first pregnancy and that's how we're going into our first birth, with those thoughts, how do we then enter motherhood? Mm-hmm. How do we then enter life as a family if our body has already failed us? And, again, that's I'm doing the quotations because I don't think your body's failed us. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, our culture and our birthing system just hasn't waited long enough, hasn't mm-hmm. trusted because, I like, here's the thing, right? We know syntocinin on the product information says this can cause fetal distress, right? Mm-hmm. So. If a person and her baby and their baby is well and healthy, why the rush? Right. So, like, well, the rush, you know what? Do you know what the issue is? So, first, I'll tell you the There's issue. so many. Oh, so many <laughs> issues. That's the question. Why the rush, right? Because mm. everybody thinks, oh my gosh, we've got to get this baby out. Mm. So, the number one, because, and I'm coming at this, I've had four clients this year who've gone beyond 42 weeks. And I don't have a massive client load when you think about compared to the hospital. Like I see 30 to 40 clients a year for, for full That's, continuity. Hang on, four over 40, is is that 10%? It is. Oh, 10% right. of your clients have I've gone this year have gone over, over 42, like. 42 plus, not just Ooh. like bang, you're looking at your 42 week mark, like beyond. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I've done a lot of delving into like the post dates, post beyond 42 research. So why the rush? So what I have learned is that the number one cause of going beyond 42 weeks is a miscalculation of estimated due date. That's in the research. That's like, that's literature. They're like, actually, the number one cause is poorly estimated due dates. And how many women do you hear from, I well, I do, I hear from so many women saying they think I'm this many weeks but I know that I'm this many weeks, okay. right? And they know it. Women know it. They Because guess what? It's their vagina that was having sex, right? So they're and well they aware of what was happening and they know their bodies. We know, like, you know, ovulation, like there's just no credit for, oh, you could possibly know what's going on inside your own body. Right. Well, and and I'll tell you how it all started, this due date saga. I can't okay. wait to hear this. Right? German I love, I love when you, oh, hey, I've got to be quiet because I just love your, st- I love when you delve into stuff. <laughs> These are my stories. My stories starts. This story, ladies and gentlemen, starts with a German obstetrician. Name, what's his name? Franz. Franz Nagel. Oh, Na- yes, Dr. Nagel, Dr. of Nagel, course. Sweetheart. I know this story, but I want you to tell it. Okay, so German obstetrician. He died in 1851. So you can imagine maybe the 1800s, maybe it was in the middle of his life when he came up with what's now still called Nagel's Rule. 
All right. And we're still using it. Does it I think it. everyone right now has already had a mind-blowing moment. Like, what? We're using an 1800s literature. From an obstetrician, not from a – so this is completely medical idea of pregnancy. We're not talking about, like, you know, the traditional midwives and, and um, you know, these really wise civilizations who were watching pregnancy way before the 1800s and working mm. out when a baby comes out. You know, this is not necessarily from observation. This is from a medical philosophy. So, I, Like I've worked with cultures like Aboriginal cultures and in the Solomon Islands and those wise women that have really, they watch, right? There is so much learning in watching and I have learned my most in terms of my most epic midwifery skills, skills from women like that. So, like, to not have this knowledge now from these women in the 17 and 1800s is heartbreaking because really all that we do is based on the, on the medical studies. Yeah, well, it's complete, you know, all of this intuitive and historical knowledge that people gathered by watching and observing has been completely overshadowed by the medical way we do things now. So it's that even the process of estimating a due date has been completely um, medicalized and taken over by obstetrics. So, so sweet Nagel, dude, Nagel's rule relies on women knowing when the start of their last menstrual period was. So it's like it's a maths, it's a maths game, really. So and and all of those apps, you know, when you, you know, the due date calculators online, they're all basically based on Nagel's rule. So a woman has to know when the 1800s. From the 1800s. I just want to keep putting that in there until we realise. And also obstetrician. So, you know, we're not talking midwifery, beautiful, like traditional level of knowledge here. We're talking about medical, recent, 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 really, in the general existence of people. And we're not Um, also talking culturally specific because different cultures birth very differently correct so then you've got to first to apply Nagel's rule you have to know when the start of your last period was and then you add seven days subtract three months and then like add the next year onto it you know like so you add seven days subtract three months that's your due date but and then add a year and that's your due date. Right. And it gives you a due date, which is in 10 months time. So we're not pregnant for nine months. People are like, oh, it's nine months. It's actually 10 months. So another, what the heck? Yes, 10 months. Another, let's culturally get this right. Like, right. yeah, 40 weeks. How was that nine months? It's, it's 10. It's 10. And, and, you know, and people talk about it being 10 moons, actually. So we're not even talking about, you know, 10 moons. Yes. And so that's the due date calculator. But that is based on a woman who bleeds regularly 28-day bleeding cycle. Mm-hmm. So if your menstrual bleed comes earlier than 28 days or your cycle's irregular or you have a 34-day cycle, you have to add or minus days from Nagel's rule. So if you've added seven days because you have a 28-day bleeding cycle, if you have a 30-day bleeding cycle, you have to add nine days. Or if you have a 26-day bleeding cycle, you have to add only five days, right? So you've mm. got to adjust it. And then, ready, I'm going to blow your mind. When you're, you know, when Nagel's rule tells you that you're four or five weeks, so you wee on a stick and you go, oh, my gosh, I'm pregnant. If you apply Nagel's rule to your pregnancy, it'll tell you you're four or five weeks pregnant by the time you skip your bleed, your period. You before, you know, you haven't menstruated. You're like, oh my gosh, maybe I'm pregnant. Boom. They say you're four or five weeks pregnant. Mm. You're actually not mm. because you ovulate approximately. This is again, very wildly, you know, different for every woman, but approximately mid part in your cycle, like day 14, approximately. Some women I know ovulate early and later. So Nagel's rule assumes that you've ovulated day 14 mm-hmm. and that also that's when you conceive because, um, but we know that girl sperms live longer than boy sperms. That, I have looked that up and 
the evidence doesn't prove that. All right. Well, we're going off topic now, but okay. <laughs> well, let's say hypothetically you ovulate, then you have sex and you get pregnant two days later. Like you have, anyway, that was my point B. Yeah, I don't want to is go that that people way. are going to conceive at different times in their cycle Correct. based on ovulation, based on how long it takes the sperm to get to the egg, based yes. on when they had sex. That's so I mean. it, this rule is assuming that everyone ovulates on day 14, everyone has sex on that day, everyone conceives on that day, and okay. then you're allowed to add or minus some days based on when you bleed. Right. But if you've got an irregular cycle and you don't really know when you ovulated or when your next period was supposed to come, Nagel's rule is wildly inaccurate. And so actually, so you you can't get pregnant before you ovulate. Mm -hmm. So, But Nagel's rule takes your pregnancy right back to the first day of your last bleed. So Mm -hmm. when they say you're actually four or five weeks pregnant, you're at best two or three weeks like your baby is two or three weeks old Mm. and so you know even that is an issue in terms of calculating so if I've got clients who know they're like I know I conceived on this particular day because they've been tracking their cycle or they you know they like that's the only day we had sex that month I couldn't have gotten pregnant any other Mm. day then you go right that's your conception time and we add 38 weeks to, in to order that. to get the 40-week due date, mm-hmm. right? Because you, yeah, if you did, right. So that's what I have to say about Nagel's rule and that's what everything's calculated off. Then also medicine doesn't trust, like the system doesn't trust women to know things, right? So now the guidelines are recommending every woman to have a dating scan. And that the dating scan is most accurate around eight weeks. That was the latest that I Yeah, somewhere seven or eight. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're like, and if your dating scan has a, I think it's a week difference to your estimated due date, guess which one they use? Oh, I know. Right. So they will, <laughs> they will trust the ultrasound more than a woman's recollection or mm-hmm. more than Nagel's rule if that's what women went off. So ultrasound has now become the authoritative technique for estimating due dates. There still can be out by six days, right? So that's the, the buffer. And so then... Fast forward, you're 41 weeks and three days and they're saying we need to induce you. You know, you've got to start thinking about how accurate is this estimated due date calculating? It's not one or two days accurate. Like it could be a whole week out. And the reason, so just so people understand what happens at the the dating ultrasound, what they're doing it is they're basing it, basing it on a measurement. So they're going from the baby, they call it crown to rump length. So from the top of baby's head to its its bum and they measure it and they base it on that. So obviously it's subjective because it's the angle that the ultrasound comes at and the person doing it. But the reason it's more accurate early is because we all grow babies of different size. And so the more ultrasounds you have, that is why if they keep giving new due date so if you have an ultrasound at seven or eight weeks then you have one at 12 then you want have one at 18 to 20 and the due date changes it's because by then and then I mean our babies are always different sizes from the moment they're conceived but typically the earlier weeks is when we're going to see the most similarity so if your due date changes it's because your baby is growing at its own speed and own rate and that is different to everybody else's. So mm. that you just want to explain that because people can get really confused by it and be like, oh, now my due date's this time. This oh yeah. Typically the system will the hospitals will go by the earlier due date. Um, that is what is evidence-based in what they use, that that eight-week um dating scan if people have had one. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess my biggest 
you know, going back to talking about, you know, we know, and this is where you were saying the research on what we know about women who gestate for longer. And, you know, you said the first thing that the evidence is showing is miscalculation of due dates. My thinking around this is, so we know, we know syntocinin says that this product can cause fetal distress. So if we really needed to get a baby out, right, if mum mm-hmm. or baby were unwell, we would do a cesarean. Right, not an induction. That's my, that was, yes, correct. Like if this baby is in such bad condition that it needs to come out today, then it's not going to tolerate an induction because an induction is far more aggressive on a baby than it's physiological labour. Exactly. And, you know, because we see that, it says it on the product information, right? So essentially what we've got is a healthy woman and baby and we're increasing the risk that the baby's going to have fetal distress by giving this drug. Mm -hmm. And so it really can turn around and look like, oh, the baby needed to come out because it got stressed Mm -hmm. during labour. When what we're failing to see is maybe it was the drug that caused that in the first place and we actually had a well woman and baby. Um, So I just, like, it doesn't make sense to me that when you've got well people that you're medically doing something to them that their body medically making a physiological event happen when the body hasn't said I'm ready to do this yeah what so were the other reasons that it came up what were there any others the, the women that gestate over 42 weeks oh yes so okay it was so- a miscalculation of miscalculation you is the most common cause yeah so what what you know and even I do it myself when you know women are approaching their 42 week gestation I'm like okay let's go right back to the beginning and let's talk through your conception journey and some women were like oh gosh I was so vagued out I wasn't calculating it was a complete surprise like I had the dating scan but that was different to when I thought I had gotten pregnant And so, you know, you start to get a picture and go, okay, we could be talking a difference of a week here. You know, if your estimated date of birth correlates well, like if you apply Nagel's rule, you kind of have a vague idea of roughly when you might have gotten pregnant and you have an ultrasound and they all seem to line up. I think that's a pretty good indicator that you're, you know, you're in the ballpark. Mm. But where you know, there's a week difference between your estimated due date by Nagel's rule and when you thought you conceived and the ultrasound, you know, we, we're just kind of stabbing in the dark as to like when you actually got pregnant. So I guess the other reasons for going beyond 42 weeks, um, it could be a, like a familial genetic thing where, you know, when women talk about, oh, yeah, all my sisters, my mum went overdue, you know, that's our family story. And some babies need to gestate for 42 weeks to be ready. And some babies need to just are ready at 39, you know. So there's a complex web of things that happen to trigger off labor. And thank God, we actually don't really know all the pieces that are required, you know, that happen in the body and how the woman and the baby's body interact to trigger off labor. Because if we did know, then that just opens the door to manipulate birthdays even more than we already do. So yeah, but I, I think the fact we don't know makes it really hard because birth is really one of the only, um, you know, untouched kind of secrets. What am I trying to say here? It's Birth is still a, a really... Um, natural secret that we we haven't been able to expose or understand Mm. which drives us crazy you know especially in our current modern culture we're so used to being able to ask siri everything and have an answer for everything you know that's i mean that when i was a kid that we didn't have we didn't have phones we didn't have the internet Mm. so it wasn't something that 
we were used to, but definitely now as an adult, we're so used to having all the answers. Mm -hmm. So an estimated date of birth is an answer. Mm -hmm. And so then when we don't get it and it doesn't happen in time, we start to automatically, because we're so programmed to, self-blame and look to ourselves as something must be wrong, something must be wrong with me or the baby. And I just really want to highlight and honour here that growing a baby is one of the hardest, it is, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Like the pressure you put on yourself to, to birth a live baby, you feel like, you know, it's in you and it like it's it was so I just the relief when I gave once I gave birth because it was like, oh, other people are responsible for it being alive now, not just me. <laughs> so I, you know, I hear so many women are like they want pregnancy to end and they want it to end because pregnancy is not this for some it is, but it's not this glowing, amazing state where we just like, you know, have sunshine out of our ass or our <laughs> Evolvers mm. for 40 weeks. Most of us are really over it. Yes. Um, yeah. So, well, let's talk. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So, there's the estimating your due date. Then there's the fact that not all babies need to gestate over 40 weeks to be born. But honestly, most do. Anytime a woman gives birth before 40 weeks, you know, in my particular client load, I get a bit of a surprise. I'm like, oh, wasn't expecting that. Like in my head, they all give birth, you know, beyond the 40-week mark. That just seems mm-hmm. like what happens. And so, and we could talk about the ARRIVE trial, which actually the big outcome from the ARRIVE trial is they said if you induce everyone at 39 weeks, which seems to be what they believe is this golden point in a pregnancy where you don't have the issues of prematurity. Like if you induce a woman at 37 weeks, in your mind as a practitioner, you're thinking, okay, we've reduced the risk of one thing by getting the baby out of this woman who's a danger to her child. You know, this is the medical way of thinking. We've reduced that risk of the pregnancy, but we've increased the risk for the baby because there's elements of prematurity where the baby might not adapt to being being born yet. So the issues of prematurity get less and less the further you go along in the pregnancy. And they believe by 39 weeks, if you induced everybody, you would have a very small risk of prematurity complications for the baby. And just saying here, like the evidence now shows the closer to 40, the better for babe in terms of short and long-term outcomes. So they've been able to do incredible research in the States and we'll link it with the show notes today um, around like school outcomes um, and and IQ and, and you know, cognitive development for babies that uh, reached 40 weeks and those that didn't. And 40 weeks and beyond, like rather than mm-hmm. the ones who were induced early. So then once women are 39 weeks, then they believe that you've reduced the risk of prematurity. But what does start to go up and um, and it goes up from about 37 weeks is the rates of stillbirth. And this is the fear in every single practitioner's mind. This is what makes them act is the risk of stillbirth. So anytime they talk to women about injunction for post-dates, I'm using speech marks again, post-dates, I hate that term. Um, they they will always quote the research that the stillbirth rate doubles, right? Mm-hmm. Once you go over 41 weeks, the stillbirth rate doubles. Now, the research shows that the stillbirth rate does double, but that is misleading because at 41 weeks, your risk of stillbirth is 6 in 10,000 pregnancies. And so 0.06%. I can't point. 0.6%. So your chance of your baby surviving is 99.94%. There you go. Maths is your forte. So Math mine. is so my forte. I'm oh, going to bring I... the numbers to this podcast, baby. Right. But if you had 10,000 women all pregnant with babies, all pregnant with babies, not monkeys, all pregnant in the 41st week, six of those babies would be lost to stillbirth. Like this is just a general stat and I know it's different in different ethnicities 
And I know it's different depending on women's risk level, but if we look generalized at all the research, like if you bunch everybody in, six in 10,000. Now, by the time you get over 41 weeks and you're approaching 42 weeks, it's 10.8 in 10,000. So theoretically... 0.1%. So your chance of your baby surviving it's got to be is less than that, 90... 0.0. No, it's... No, so it's 0.06 and then it's, so 0.06 and then 0.1%. So the chance of your baby surviving is 99.90%. And this is stillbirths, not during labour. This is like while you're pregnant where the baby, Uh you know, just suddenly dies. Yeah. Right. So super small numbers like we're still talking in the 10,000s we're not talking in the hundreds we're not talking like one in 100 or anything like that so beyond 41 weeks it's 10.8 per 10,000 so yeah theoretically approximately doubles but that's what they're frightened of that is it and so to induce that many women for being beyond 41 weeks doesn't seem like a fair swap to me in terms of the impact that induction can have on a woman's experience, the pressure it puts on the system, all that kind of stuff. And the absolute disrespect for spontaneous, the importance of spontaneous labour seems to be a massive overreaction to this statistical risk of 10.8 in 10,000 stillbirths. An extra four babies per 10,000 women. Per week. To save an extra four babies per 10,000. They induce them we, all. We induce, and I know we don't know the specific percentage of women that purely get induced just for post-dates, but it, it, it would be pretty high. We can look that up maybe and mm. have a look and see if it's on Mothers and Babies Report. Yeah. I just want to say here, and, and people have probably stopped listening if they have had a stillbirth, um, but I just, and, or maybe not, I shouldn't assume, apologies for that. I just want to honour those people that have had a stillbirth um, and anyone that's lost a baby just want to put that out there and say I'm sorry if you or someone you know has had one you know we would love the number to be zero Mm. but what we're saying here the stillbirth rate hasn't changed in over 20 years in Australia but what has changed is birth trauma Mm -hmm. inductions and interventions and I think Mel and I come at a place of deep compassion and love Mm around birth and and family health and we know there are so many benefits on a woman for a woman and her babe to actually initiate labor themselves Mm. um and you know you're talking about that disrespect and and i do also want to acknowledge here that um especially for aboriginal and torres strait islander women in Mm. australia that rate is much higher and it's not acceptable and um we as as a country really need to bring that rate down but generalized you know this is where language by our care providers is so important so i talked about at the start of this do you find your care provider intimidating if somebody says to you your risk of stillbirth doubles you go oh oh that sounds really scary i don't want that i want to do whatever i can to decrease that risk because in our heads, we're thinking big numbers, mm-hmm. you know, like 10 to 20% is big, 20 to 40%, massive, 40 to 80%, oof, that's doubling. Mm-hmm. But if your care provider said, okay, the reason we offer induction, one of the main reasons is because we're scared of the risk of stillbirth, the risk that your baby um, may pass away before labour at this gestation is 0.06%. So it has a 99.94% chance of survival. Next week, that risk of stillbirth does increase to 0.1%. So now we reduce the risk of your baby, the chance of your baby surviving from 99.94 to 99.90. 
But am I going to get emails from people correcting your maths? Because I can't work out if you're right. No, because I worked it out and I put it on a Facebook post and then somebody told me I was wrong and I was like, oh, no, I was wrong. And I took it down and I wasn't wrong. I was right. Right. I'm just sitting here going, I have no idea. You know, 10 in 10,000 makes sense to me. But your percentages, I can't work out if that's (laughs) Yeah, no, I sat there for ages working it out. And so, um, you know, you might go, oh, that is a risk I'm comfortable with. Right. And then, and I just want to yeah. say that too. So often we blame ourselves and say we wish we'd known more, but this is a very culturally accepted thing. We culturally accept that pregnancy is 40 weeks, that if we go over 40 weeks, we're overdue when mm. actually we're not. We're still due, just due, just not overdue. Due. That's just right. Just due, just due. Um And then we culturally accept that induction is very normal. That is a normal thing that happens if you reach this time and your body didn't go into spontaneous labour, then that's what has to happen. Mm -hmm. And I guess here too we can talk about, okay, what do you do if you're, firstly you're sure of your due dates or even if you're not sure of your due dates and you find yourself in a situation where you're being told that you need to be induced or that they want to book an induction, because that's another thing you can do. If you want to, go ahead, book an induction date like the hospital will say. But you are free to just not show up to that appointment if you don't feel like having your baby at that time, if you feel like that's not the time. But we, there's a lot we can do now with technology if you want to, to find out how well your baby is. You know, so if a client of mine ends up 42 weeks, I'll always offer them the opportunity of, okay, like, what what do you want to do now? And they say, well, what can I do? So I have a little, you know, I get to run this spiel a little bit because obviously, you know, it ha- it actually happens quite a lot that I'm talking to women about, you know, what do you want to do if you if you go beyond 42 weeks? Um, ultrasounds are not a bad way of working out placental function because that's the other thing that people say is that you know you hit your due date and then your placenta just carks it and stops working which is not really what happens to placentas sarah so, um sarah wickham and rachel reed i reckon both have really good information around that and maybe we should pop that in the show notes just if people because we're not going to have the time to cover it today yeah. but maybe we maybe we'll try and do an episode on placentas dying and the information around that but if you're listening to this and you want more information look up Sarah Wickham um, and Rachel Reed because they both cover this really well and in depth and the ARRIVE trial I think we should talk about we'll talk about the ARRIVE trial in another episode the ARRIVE trial if you want to find out ASAP I will put the ARRIVE trial so anybody who subscribes to our emailing list which Mm -hmm. is that you can do that at melaniethemidwife.com we send out to anybody on that list the research papers that we've talked about in each episode and you can look at all the ones from previous episodes as well so there's just folders there that you can go through of all this evidence so we that's for anybody's on the mailing list so I will put up the arrive trial in there and I've also actually done a YouTube video specifically on the arrive trial yes here's something I prepared earlier I know like thank you previous past me because um, so you can have a look if you go, uh, I've got a YouTube channel, Melanie, the midwife, just look at that in YouTube. Like, I don't know the exact link, but if you go to yeah. YouTube and look at Melanie, the midwife, um, the arrive trial is there and you can look over induction. You know, it's about induction at 39 weeks. And they're saying that if you induce everyone at 39 weeks, those are the best outcomes. And those are the, um, but they talk about it in terms of reducing cesarean section rates. Yeah. Because they did find that there was a reduction in cesarean section rates, but you know, is inducing everyone at 39 weeks the way to reduce cesarean section rates when actually, you know, what else is an evidence-based way of reducing cesarean section rates? Midwifery continuity of care. Exactly. We already have the answer. And guess what? It's cheaper than inducing everybody. Women have higher satisfaction. And so well, yeah. we're doing all these studies on how to reduce the cesarean section rate. And I'm like, guys. We actually already have that answer without having to induce everybody. That's what drove me nuts about the ARRIVE trial. It was one study done in the States and uh, so many private obstetricians just took it on instantly here in Australia. 
Anyway, it's all on the YouTube and I break it down. There's access to full text of it, I believe. Yeah, because it's open access. So look at that. What was our point? Well, my point was, you know, we have um, 13 randomised control trials that show the benefits of midwifery continuity of care. They didn't get taken up. One study came out and all of a sudden, bang, everyone was getting induced at 39 weeks. And yeah. some obstetricians very much go by the ARRIVE trial and will want to book your, you, you in for an induction at 39 weeks. And that is why. So uh, talking to your obstetrician, if you've got one early around what their beliefs are on the ARRIVE trial and then doing your own research so that you're better informed for those discussions later in your pregnancy. So doing this kind of stuff, having these discussions early are really important. So in terms of what we want to offer here, um, I really think one of the best things you can do is get to know your care provider and where they sit and what they offer as routine care towards the end of pregnancy. So do they offer to book an induction in early? Do they offer um, daily CTGs and, and um, ultrasound? And I want to say offer here, it's not, it's just because it's routine for them does not mean it has to be routine for you. You mean like so if people have gone past, like well past their estimated due date for monitoring? For most hospitals now, once people reach 41 weeks and even for people before that, especially if, you know, their appointment is 40 plus 5, for example, mm -hmm. What I am seeing is that women are routinely offered vaginal examinations to what? check their cervix. Oh, my yes. gosh. To see what their cervix is doing. So, again, that shouldn't be routine care to see no. what your cervix is doing. It's not a prediction no. ever. What a vaginal examination is never, ever a prediction, no matter when it's done, either when you're pregnant or during labor. Mm. So this is becoming routine care. Let's just do a vaginal examination, see where your cervix is at. I mean, why? I, I get why people do it in terms of induction planning. So people That's will do right? one to see... Um, okay, the cervix is two centimetres dilated already, so we won't book you in for tape or balloon. Just come in and get your waters broken. Um, so routine vaginal examinations, um, routine um, CTGs and ultrasounds measuring the amniotic fluid and looking at the placenta. And they're often offered, especially once a person reach 40, what reaches 41 weeks, every kind of second day, um, depending on where people are birthing yeah. so this is really important here and and most obstetricians will do an ultrasound at every appointment right during pregnancy yeah, yeah. so um yeah the side of stuff you don't see Mel. i don't like you know i'm in this beautiful bliss bubble of just trusting yeah, women i'm here to pop it i'm here to women, pop it tell you yeah. what's, what's actually happening so what's actually happening so confident people that have a private obstetrician will have an ultrasound at every appointment. Now, I just Ooh. want to say that that is not evidence-based, but just so so if that's happening to you, then that comes with risk. Having an ultrasound put on you every time, there's evidence around that, but it also comes with risk of, oh, let's just measure the baby and see what the fluid is. It's like we're looking for a problem. Mm. And this is where the big baby kind of syndrome has kind of really stemmed from. So, um, finding out, okay, what is the normal care that your care provider provides um, at the end of pregnancy yeah. um, and what does it look like? And, and that is just a really important thing to know because what I see is most women get to 41 weeks and then they're like, oh, and then I just had an ultrasound and then all of a sudden the amniotic fluid was low and then I was in for an induction. I didn't even know any of that was going to happen. Mm. So really having these discussions with your care provider to know what is um, going to be recommended to you and being able to be informed. And there'll be so much pressure. Once you get over 41 weeks, every time you see a healthcare provider, it's going to be like, so they just love a good plan. They want to put in a date for your induction. They want to decide absolutely everything in advance. Whereas I've noticed, particularly with my clients, well, the system needs that. Sorry, to, I don't right. interrupt you, but it, we're, it's birthing is big fast um it's not big and fast what i want to say it's 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 a production it's busy. line you've got it's to busy. fit everybody in yeah 
and it's getting and so it's busy we're also short staffed we're losing lots of midwives mm-hmm. because they're burnt out so it's like you know the number of people birthing increasing number of people to look after them decreasing um and it it, it is a system and systems require bookings yeah so just you know i just i actually want to honor that and people that do work in the system i get why it's done i totally yes. get why people want to plan it um and also though all that booking you know, and, and the regimented way of caring for women, it's really necessary for the system to work. It works yes. for the system to schedule yes. everybody. But you know who it doesn't work for? The it woman. doesn't work for the woman, right? Yeah. So the system is system-centric. I don't care how much research is around woman-centered care and how care needs to be woman-centered. It's impossible to offer it in the system. And I used to think I offered it. I used to think I offered woman-centered care. I've never been able to offer it properly. And you'll know how non-woman-centered the system is when you try and do something that's that's opposite to what they want you to do. You will see how system-centric it is. So in saying that, though, you know, we are very well conditioned to not listen to our instincts as as adults. Well, that's the benefit, though. People have been encouraged to have poor health literacy and trust Mm -hmm. in the medical system to give Mm -hmm. them answers. And what women need to do is actually take back that power because that knowledge, and, you know, we talk about authoritative knowledge, and in Mm -hmm. the world medicine has been given authoritative knowledge to tell Mm -hmm. us what is right and wrong with our bodies and if Mm -hmm. we want the power back in that scenario we need to foster a culture of high health literacy of Mm -hmm. encouraging people to tap into their intuitive knowledge rather than this external objective medical knowledge to be able to work out if us and our babies are well because we can tune in intuitively to the well-being of your baby when you're pregnant you can but it it takes a lot and I think especially with your first pregnancy so often women here trust your baby trust your body but if we go back right to our childhood most of us were raised in a very authoritarian way and then the system is very authoritarian which is why it can't really provide woman-centered care because there is a hierarchy mm-hmm. in that system of doctors then midwives then then patient and so you know as a child we don't eat when we're hungry you know there's that whole don't eat that now you'll spoil your dinner right we eat at certain meal times we often don't we when we need to we go go on come on come and go to the toilet now because we're going on a big car trip or go to the toilet because you're going to bed with recess and lunch and you can wee in recess and lunch time yeah don't do not ask for permission to go to the toilet when you're at school because that's extremely embarrassing you'll be made fun of then there's the whole you know i remember those permission notes when i was a kid just then there's the sleep thing. You don't go to bed when you're tired. You go to bed at bedtime. So as adults, we become these perfectly conditioned beings to not trust our instincts. There is incredible, mm. there's an incredible book called The Gift of Fear. Yes. And he talks about how we're the only animals in the whole animal kingdom that ignore our instincts. And then what we do to pregnant people in their first pregnancy is we go, hey, trust your body, trust your baby. And these be- we're left here going, what the fuck does that mean? And so what I often yeah. see in birth debriefs is that instinct was there. It was there, but they didn't feel safe enough to trust it. But I think it's unfair to just say to women, oh, you can just do it because there is so much in our headspace that is telling us to not trust ourselves. And often it's with that first birth that people then realise their power hey, fuck it, I could have trusted myself. Mm. I did know. Our instincts are there, but we still, it takes a lot to undo that conditioning that so many of us have had. So, and yes. we really are the experts in our own are. bodies. The, our bodies are, you know, I was listening to um, The the Happiest Person Alive, you know, the storybook oh, yeah. um, by Eddie. He's the Auschwitz survivor. He's like yes. 101 years old and Happiest Man Alive, it's called the yeah. book. And I wrote it down the other day. He was like, he's an engineer, like this incredible engineer. And he was like, I've worked on all the finest machine machines in the world. There is no finer, no greater machine than the human body. Mm-hmm. And you know, his story is is such um an you know, an example of that, of 
what his body withstood emotionally mm-hmm. and physically. And I was just like listening to it like, yes, there we there is nothing better than us. And I will always say to people that I'm caring for, your body is greater than any machine we have. You are more connected to your baby than anything else, mm-hmm. right? And a machine might tell us a little snippet here and now, mm-hmm. but your body your body holds the whole story. And so care that fosters that trust in our body so that we can make instinctual decisions is is what every woman needs and deserves. Right. To sum it up. Sum it up. up. Due dates. What do you want to say about due dates, B? I can't say anything anymore. I'm not really sure where we're at. So I want to say that in terms of what we offer, check out my free antenatal classes. I talk about induction a lot there. I talk about choice a lot there. If you are approaching a period where you're getting asked about induction, you want to talk about it one-on-one, I offer consults. I'm normally booked out a couple of months in advance, but get in touch. Always send me an email, not about the animals. Send me an email to say, uh, I really want to talk to you, B, and I can't find anything on your system, and uh, I'll try and book an emergency chat with you. Uh, That is it for me. What do you want to offer, Mel? Due dates. If I'm thinking of due dates, there's two great books that I love that would help women, I think, with just getting into the mindset of if due date, like an estimated due date is even important to them or the system. I love Rachel Reed's book, Why Induction mm-hmm. Matters. And mm-hmm. there's a lesser yes. known book um, by Michelle O'Donk called Childbirth in the Age of Plastics. Mm, I've got that one. Oh, and yeah. um, what and about Sarah Wickham's um oh. In, uh, called in the in your own time in their own time. Yes, I think so. Just try Sarah and Wickham, get on her website, Sarah Wickham. She's got a whole book about due dates and post dates. Um, and the other thing, in terms of tapping into intuitive knowledge and navigating the system on this, um, I have a massive course on my website, melaniethemidwife.com. It's called Transformative Birth Work. And I've collaborated with Rachel Reed, uh, Professor Hannah Darlin, myself, um, Sarah, Dr. Sarah Buckley, and Kirsten Small, who's an obstetrician, but amazing. She should be a midwife because she thinks completely. She's an honorary midwife. We always tell her she's an honorary right. midwife. And Jesse Johnson Cash. And we talk all about how to navigate the system. And that's what and, and strategies for women who are finding that they're into the system and need to navigate issues of, you know, advocating for themselves and not being heard and their intuitive knowledge not being respected and their desires not being respected. This transformative birth work helps you to understand the system, issues of consent, and also um, there's what I call power strategies. So strategies to actually hold on to your power because the system wants to control you by taking it essentially and they want you to comply with what they think is best and so I think the take-home message around estimated due dates and what happens if you go beyond it is increase your knowledge like pursue knowledge yourself so that you feel confident in choices that you make um, and understand that you're the authority in your pregnancy and even if you choose something that is obviously more dangerous than another choice. You that's actually your choice and your prerogative and your right to make that decision. So that's what I want to say about due dates. Yeah, um, and Sarah Sarah Wickham's book is Inducing Labor: Making Informed Decisions by Dr. Sarah Wickham. Uh, There's check another that one. Out. Yeah, I feel like there was too, but um, on a website. In what do you reckon? It's I'm called sure it's called in. I'm gonna look at that in, in your own. Your time. own Time. Yeah, in your own time. Yeah. How Western medicine controls the start of labor and why this needs to stop. Boom, the great birth rebellion. That's what I feel like. That's that's like a title and a half. Yeah. All right, team. We are out of time. We will see you in next week's potty. See you next week. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. 
We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! That's the end of today's podcast, but if you've managed to hang on and listen all the way to the end, there's a little blooper treat for you. And 37 to 42 is normal for a human. I'm just saying for a pig, it's normal. Three months, three weeks, three days, babies, done. That's it. End of story. Okay, we'll talk about that because because people are going to start sending me hate mail about animals having consciousness and yeah, this bit you're going to have to cut it out. This this bit cannot go live at all. I don't. I'm not seeing anything offensive in it. I can understand why people would get offended, and also if you interfere in an animal birth, they will take your face off. Like if we interfere with animal births, things go wrong too. You know, I don't know. I feel like people would really like to know about pigs, though. Just for me, it's like. Okay, it's... here we go. Here, I'm going to leave it in. If you no! really hate what I just said, please send me hate mail. mkjackson at live.com.au. B wants to back out of that conversation. I'm standing by it. <laughs> and I can't do anything about I'm feeling really powerless now, Mel. Oh no, I feel it now. I, feel bad. It. I edit this podcast and now B's like, take it out. I'm like, no, it's staying in. And she can't do anything about it because she doesn't live anywhere near me. B wants to completely back out of this conversation. Don't send her hate mail. That's not where she's at. She trusts the body and feels like the pig pregnancy and egg hatching conversation weakens our argument. I, as a farm girl, just all I'm saying is what I've observed is that pigs, goats, chickens. I feel like you haven't you've given two animals, right? There's how many other animals? We need to like, I feel like to make this fair, we need to look at all the animal species. I'm gonna Google it right now. Google what do animal you, do you want to know? Gestational is, period of animals. Is it accurate? Of animals. We're over an hour. See, you're gonna have to cut this out because we've talked too long. Well, there might be other people. Uh, look, rabbits. Hang on. Oh, no. Cat. Let's see. Gestational period of a cat. Okay, it varies by two days, 63 to 65 days. But what we also need to know is, is that animals gestate usually a lot shorter than people. Elephants. So then their range their range has to be shorter too, right? Ooh, elephants then. Tell me what that range oh, is. Elephants. Gestational period of an elephant. I'm so sidetracked. We need to just summarise and get the hell out of here. This would be great. Oh, look. Okay. So the longer the gestation, I guess the more, the bigger the range. Uh, a gestation, Asian elephant, 18 to 22 months, but the African bush elephant doesn't mess around, 22 months, boom. I mean, we'll have this conversation later, but like I'll do a lot more Googling when we're finished about gestational periods. But the shorter that, you know, with the shorter the gestation, the the smaller the range though, right? Because guess what? Animals don't even necessarily know they're pregnant either until the baby comes out. They go, oh. You are so getting hate mail. I know they don't. They don't. They just go, oh gosh, I don't feel as like, I don't. I feel tired. I'm going to sleep. I feel hungry. I'm going to eat. I'm going to get hate mail. I'm just telling you now, I think that they don't realize they need to look after what just came out of their body unless they have the hormonal cascade that they need to have to intuitively parent that little creature. 